Good morning, Venture. Good to see you all today. Uh, again, I am uh, privileged to speak on this week two of our series, Too Much. And those two words, I think, are applicable. Because in our culture, sometimes I, I think we have, we have too much. We have too much at our disposal, and it can be uh, negatively impacting to our spiritual health. The, the subtitle for this series, I don't know if you've caught that or not yet, but it is this, Living with Less in the Land of More. And I love what that captures because I think that's true. I think as Christians, we have maybe sometimes too much, and we need to learn to live with less in the land of more. After all, the, the quintessential job of the advertiser is to convince you that you need more, right? Some of you, uh, you're going to find out all the things you need all of a sudden in life as those Black Friday ads continue to start coming out, right? You know, you see those sales, and you're like, oh, I need that, I got to have that, I got to have that. We want too much, well, today I want to look at what it means to be content. Our lead pastor, Stan Killebrew, introduced this topic last week. And next week, our discipleship pastor, Jake Harp, will be talking about the biblical example of tithing. And then Stan will preach again that next week. And then we'll close out the series, week five, with uh, Tony Johnson, our preschool director and pastor of pastoral care, preaching on gratitude. So we're excited for this series. We've kind of traded a lot of the responsibilities and are really using uh, a kind of a, a series and a book maybe that some of you saw last week entitled Too Much, uh, much of the content driven from Gary Johnson. You might know Gary, remember him preaching here, but we're excited uh, to bring this message to you. And for me, I'm ex especially excited because in my role as executive pastor, I have the opportunity to lead alongside with our finance team in the managing the, the finances of the church, managing giving and expenses and looking at all of that. And so I kind of have a first-hand look at that. So much so that uh, you may have seen it, but I encourage you to go find it if you haven't. I uh, posted a blog post just this past week. I'm going to do four of those in coordination with this series, specifically looking at venture and kind of these financial aspects and how it directly relates to us as a church. So if, if you haven't seen those, Maybe go find that on our blog and our website or find it on our social media channels. But I've been in ministry long enough to know that any time the preacher, whoever it may be, starts talking about money, people start to squirm, right? Some of you maybe even now are feeling like, oh, why did I come today? I don't want to hear about money. Because money, it's, it's deeply personal. We've probably all felt a variety of emotions associated with money. Maybe you have uh, felt pride. Maybe you have felt some shame. Perhaps it's excitement on, on payday when you get that paycheck. Or maybe it's dread when you have to write those checks or pay those bills. Maybe for you, you have felt contentment in money. And maybe for others of you, you, you haven't. What we do know, this is a, a, a prolific topic and a prolific a topic of concern to Americans. Uh, a poll just taken earlier this year in March uh, by Bankrate and Psych Central found that 42% of Americans say that money has negatively impacted their mental health. 42% of Americans say that money, the concept of money and spending, has negatively impacted their mental health. The reality is that was taken in, in March. And there's a lot that has changed with our economy, with money, even since March. And so you could even venture to guess that maybe that number is closer to 50% or even higher. And if half of us in this room are having something in our lives that has a negative impact on our mental health, why wouldn't we talk about it? Why wouldn't we look at what Scripture has to teach about it? Because 
quite frankly, it has a lot to say about money, about contentment, about living a life of generosity. And so before you run to your financial advisor with the stress and anxiety of what you're seeing, let's run to Scripture and see what it says. Because I'm afraid most all of us have bought into a lie. You see, there's a myth out there that I'm hoping that we can bust today. Something that we've all believed in that quite frankly isn't true. And to help illustrate that, I'm going to use the life of Solomon. He was the third king of Israel. He's found in your Old Testament. And we, we can read a lot about Solomon's life, and particularly as it relates to money and his contentment or lack thereof. So if you have a Bible and would like to follow along in Scripture, you can turn right now to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, we'll be picking up with verse 24, kind of at the start of his life. Um, his parents, David and Bathsheba, you may remember a story about them or two. Uh, they are the parents of Solomon. And so we read here, beginning again in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedidiah. So we have a little bit of conflict even here, what we're naming this child. Mom and dad, they decide to name him Solomon, which has the Hebrew uh, root of the word shalom. You maybe have heard that greeting. It means peace or bring, to bring peace. You could even say that this boy, you could call him little peace boy. Uh, and, and really that would be prophetic because in his life, Israel did experience a lot of peace and prosperity. But God sent through the prophet Nathan instructions to name him Jedidiah. You, you saw that in the text. And if your Bible like mine, in that footnote, it says Jedidiah means loved by God. Could you imagine God himself sending word to parents to name your child something that means loved by God? For some reason, we never read of that name again. Maybe his parents were like, nope, we're good. Solomon's a lot easier for him to spell. The cursive on Jedediah would be really hard to learn. We're just going to stick with Solomon. We never read of this God-given name in Jedediah again. But regardless, uh, we have Solomon. We're introduced to him in this uh, text. Uh, let's move on a little bit later into his life. Uh, as we continue to look at Solomon's past, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. And in this text, if you turn right a little bit more... Uh, and again, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, uh, God has appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, hey, Solomon, what, what do you need? What can, we, what can I provide for you to help you rule? And so in this dream, Solomon begins to answer, and this is where we pick up Solomon's answer. This is Solomon speaking. He says this in chapter 3, verse 9 of 1 Kings. So give your servant, Solomon says, give me, your servant, a discerning heart to govern your people, and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? That was Solomon's request. And how did God respond? Well, let's keep reading uh, down in uh, verse 11. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life, or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, justice I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. God said, yeah, I'll, I'll give you wisdom, but I'll give you so much more. He said, I'll give you wealth and honor as well. And 
I think it could be easy for us to look at Solomon's life here, and maybe we, we're eager to throw some stones or feel a little contempt or judgment for Solomon. In a moment, we're going to see how this wealth and honor actually was negative in his life. It actually uh, really fought to corrupt him and lead him astray. But did you notice who provided that blessing? It was God. The Lord provided that blessing of wealth and honor. It wasn't necessarily innately negative or sinful. It, It was what it did to him. So as we try to contextualize the life of Solomon. You may be eager to kind of look at his life and, 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 and kind of look at what he did and think, oh, he made all these mistakes and had all these things ruin him. We're going to read more about that in just a moment. But I think it's funny how we, we always look at those who have more with a little bit of contempt, a judgment, and maybe we feel a little shame about that. I, I practiced this as a kid growing up in high school. I grew up on the west side of Indianapolis in Hendricks County, more of a small farming uh, rural community. And you had to say one word for us to utter kind of disgust. Anyone know what it was? Caramel. Yes. Because you had it all up here. You all had these beautiful city, uh, beautiful schools, all this thing. And so us kind of country bumpkins over on the west side of Indianapolis, we, ugh, caramel, right? It's easy for us to look at those who have wealth and honor and more with a little bit of disgust. But I want to tell you this. I'd argue that even the poorest person in this room or watching online, we should put ourselves in Solomon's shoes. For the fact that we live here in America and have the trappings of uh, this country and all the things that are offered to us, I don't want you to look at Solomon's story. Rather, I want you to look in Solomon's story, because I think we really belong in his story. We are ones that can struggle with wealth and honor and possessions and the desire to want more and more and more. Well, we've looked a little bit at Solomon's past. Now I want to jump ahead to his present. Uh, let's uh, look at 1 Kings chapter 10, just a few more, bo- uh, a few more books to the right. Um, This section in my Bible is labeled Solomon's Splendor. We read a little bit about what he actually had available to him. Remember, he had lots of blessings. And I'm going to kind of read through these, and you'll see them uh, jump up on the screen there. Uh, 1 Kings 10, beginning with verse 14. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenue from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and all the governors and territories. This would be like what was reported on his W-2 as his actual earnings, but he had all this residual income that would be maybe on a 1099 of, of taxes and other monies that would come in. The dude had all kinds of money. He was wealthy beyond means. Not only that, he had lots of gold shields. Verse 16, King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. He had lots, hundreds and hundreds of shields made of gold. Not only that, verse 18, the king made a great throne. He covered it with ivory and overlaid it with what? fine gold. He had a throne of gold and ivory. Verse 21, all of King Solomon's goblets were gold. We're not drinking out of the red solo cup here. We're drinking from gold goblets. All the, par- all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. That's a supply and demand issue. There was so much gold 
silver had just kind of dropped in value. He had goblets of gold. Not only that, but he also accumulated chariots. Verse 26, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Not only that, verse 28 says that these horses were imported from Egypt. I want you to hold on to that. We're going to come back to that. He had to get horses from Egypt. And then verse 29, they imported a chariot even from Egypt. Again, the, the nation of Israel, they have escaped Egypt. The Lord has delivered them from Egypt. And now Solomon is going back to get something that he really wants of great value. He goes back into, into Egypt just to get chariots and just to get uh, horses. He had lots of things. But not only that, he had a lot of women in his life. Chapter 11, verse 1 King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because you will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. I don't know if you did the math, but we have 1,000 wives. Guys, I could say a lot about that. What are you laughing about? What's so funny? No, I, I, this, this dude has 1,000 women in his life. I mean, we're, we're good to just remember the birthday and the anniversary date, right? We have two dates to remember. All the other dates, you know, are just days, but these are two days we remember. If you had a thousand wives, you'd have an average of three to four anniversaries or birthdays a day to remember. This guy had a ton of wives in his life. You could actually summarize his life in this passage with two words. He had wealth and he had women. He had wealth and he had women. And if we're being honest, if you go down to Barnes & Noble to the men's interest section and pull out any of those magazines there, my guess is the advertisements in there, the articles in there are going to drive us, even in today's culture, to believe the same. All you need is this toy, this truck, this thing, this house, this relationship, this experience, wealth and women, and you will be happy. But Solomon knew better. He knew better. How do we know that? Well, he was a king, and part of his role as a king was to read something called the King's Scroll. This is, this is interesting. I'm actually going to go back to Deuteronomy. Uh, the context here in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, Moses was preaching uh, kind of three farewell sermons to the nation of Israel. They had clamored for a king. Finally, the Lord said, okay, you can have a king, but we want to instruct the king on some, some things that are really important. And there was something called the king's scroll. It was supposed to be at his side at all times. It was supposed to be read at all times. And these are the things that were said in the king's scroll right here. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Didn't we just read about Solomon's horses? Yeah. Or he uh, acquired a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to go get more of them. He, he did what? He went to Egypt to get the horses. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives. He had a thousand wives. Or his heart will be led astray, which it was. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. All of those things were happening. And you, you might sit there and think, Solomon had all this wisdom. How could he be so ignorant? How could he be so foolish? 
I don't know that he was ignorant. I think he knew better. I think he knew how to live a content life, but I think he chose rather to be disobedient. I think he chose a different path than was prescribed here in Scripture. And so I'll ask you again, where do you see yourself in Solomon's story? When it comes to money, when it comes to our aim to be content, is it that we don't know how to live a life of contentment? Or do we simply choose to be disobedient? Do we simply choose to ignore what Scripture has to teach us on that? We've looked at Solomon's past. We've looked at his present. Now let's look at his future. The the cool thing about Solomon is we can look ahead at the book of Ecclesiastes, another book in the Old Testament, uh, kind of a book of poetry. We have Psalms. We have Proverbs right in the middle of your Bible. And then we have a small book of Ecclesiastes penned by Solomon, really in the later years of his life. He's looking back on his life. He's kind of telling a little bit about what he sees. And he identifies five different pursuits that he sees here. And we'll pick it up with chapter 1, verse 16. He said this, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. He tried wisdom, didn't do it. Didn't find fulfillment in that. Not only that, chapter two, verse three, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Chapter two, verse four, four, I understood great projects. I I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. He had work. He, he, He poured himself into work. Not only did he do work, he also poured himself into wealth. Verse uh, seven says, I, brought, I bought male and female slaves, and I had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, and the treasure of kings and provinces, I had it all. I had wisdom. I had wine. I had work. I had wealth. He also says, I had women. I acquired male and female uh, singers, and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. He had it all. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, he says this, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. When's the last time you remember doing that? I ordered something from Amazon on Friday morning, and by 4 o'clock it was on my porch. I didn't even have to leave my house. It's so easy just to, to get what we need, get what we want. I desired, uh, I, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It was meaningless, he says. And then later on in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is what? It's meaningless. In fact, that word meaningless is in the book of Ecclesiastes over 40 40 times. And we know in Scripture, if it's repeated, it's important. Solomon is pointing out that this is all meaningless. So I I mentioned at the beginning of our time together that I hope to bust a myth today. And that's this. It's the myth of more. The myth of more. Uh, Solomon knew better, yet he let these possessions, these things, these relationships ruin him. How did that happen? Because he didn't live by God's design. He chose, he knew better, but he chose to be disobedient. 
And friends, I'm afraid that we're guilty of the same thing. We know what it's like. Maybe, maybe some of you could learn more about being content or living with less, but my guess is most of us know that sometimes we want too much. Sometimes it's never fulfilling. We want the next thing, the bigger thing, the whatever's next on the market, and we aren't so much ignorant as we are disobedient in this. You see, just like Solomon, we, we have a past and we have a present and we have a future. And so many times, financial decisions that we've made over here in the past can cripple us financially in the future. Credit cards are a great example of that. And before you throw stones, we have credit cards. We, we try to always use them wisely and pay them off. But know that if you have a credit card, the average annual rate this week of credit cards in our nation is 18.94%. 18% interest. That's that's the, the penalty you're paying on a decision you've made in the past that affects not only your present, but your future. In fact, that rate has gone up 16% just since March. So know that when you pull that plastic out to do that Christmas shopping this season, and maybe you're not buying a lot for yourself, maybe it's to spoil the grandkids or the kids, you can be feeding into that myth as well. And if you pull that piece of plastic out and you swipe that card, know that the impact that you're making right now in the present for your future is even greater than it was even a year ago. Those decisions in our past affect our future. Today we have a student section over here. Love having you guys with us. Uh, by the way, if you have a high schooler or, or middle schooler, 7th through 12th grade, uh, they just started something this week, meeting down at the student center at 1030 and then coming in here and sitting together. Many of you guys will be making decisions about what college you're going to go to or, or what trade school you might or what you might do after work and just or after school uh, is out as a senior. Just know that it's so easy to let the prestige, the, the name of the university or college get so wrapped up in your decision making, you might actually make a financial decision right now in your present that will cripple you in your future. You could be up to your eyeballs in debt, and it seems like a good thing, but friends, I'm telling you, it, it might not be. It might be leading into the myth of more. So what can we do about this? How, how can we stop this myth from, from gaining in our heart? Well, I just said the word, and the word is stop. And I know sometimes that's not a, a fun word, but we have to stop. First, we have to stop wanting more. We have to stop wanting more. My wife and I, uh, Emily, have one wife, so it's easy to remember those dates. Uh, next December, not this December, next December, we're, we'll celebrate our 20th anniversary. And thank you, appreciate that. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let her know that you were excited about that. Um, <laughs> In our 20 years of marriage, we have lived in six different homes, which kind of seems like a lot when you think about it, but the first two were, were rentals, and it was that third house that we moved into at 2405 South State Street. It was a 1940s Cape Cod-style home. It had two bedrooms upstairs, a little one-car garage that you could probably push over in a, in a wind, you know, real kind of rickety garage. We even, it was so nice, we even shared the alley with the Jiffy Lube behind us. And I thought we had arrived. I mean, this was it. And I'll never forget, my dad came to visit, and the first thing he said was so offensive to me. It just, it sticks out. He said, oh, this is a great home. Oh, thanks, Dad. We're real excited. This will be a great starter home for your family. What? Starter home? This is a mansion, and in 30 years, this is all mine. What are you talking about, starter home? This is a great house. Well, 
his prediction was true. Because, you know, if, if, I had a, if I had a two-car garage, then we wouldn't have to do the, the shuffling of the vehicles to get them out of the driveway. We could park them inside at night. If we had a, another bedroom, then our girls wouldn't have to share a bedroom. That would just be easier. And so we found ourselves moving about five or six years later. And even moving here to Hamilton County, we had a house first in Westfield. And then a couple months in, we, we were hosting a small group. And it just wasn't the best for hosting, you know, friends and family. We, we could have a place to have a small group, but the kids didn't really have a place. And we started looking for what was next. And, and we were blessed to find a house with even a three-car garage. And I always said, if I had a three-car garage, then the camper, which is also kind of like a second house on wheels, you know, great investment, not really, don't do it. But we had a camper, we were paying to store it somewhere. We got to pay to do that as well. But if I had a three-car garage, I could store the camper in the third-car garage. But we've had it over, had the house over a year. And guess what? I'm, I'm still paying to store the camper because I, I like the room in the garage. We always, we always want more. We always want something just a little better, a little bigger. We believe so much sometimes in that myth, the myth of more. But whether it was wine or women, or wealth, or possessions. We see all of those things in Solomon's life. But what does Paul have to say? A New Testament author, he's writing a book to the church in Philippi. He says this in Philippians uh, 4, beginning with verse 11. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.13, it's a pretty famous passage. In fact, if we're honest, like Hobby Lobby has probably made a lot of money off of putting Philippians 4.13 on art and selling it and you putting it in your hallway or in your living room or your dining room. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But so many times we apply that verse to things that are really difficult in our life or sometimes even things that are impossible, right? Like you may, you may imagine someone jumping off a cliff, flapping their wings, hoping to fly, saying, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but you're gonna die. Like, it's not how that verse was intended. Instead, that context earlier in that said I can be content in all situations. Paul was writing this letter in prison. He was late in his life, probably around 60 years old, in chains, behind bars, likely cold and hungry, maybe wet. And he was saying, I'm content in all things. Now, before you take that scripture off your wall, leave it there. Just remember the context. It, it speaks to our contentment, our ability to be satisfied with what God has provided. Even though Paul was behind bars, he was really free in one way. He didn't have the trappings of possessions. He didn't have anything with them. All he had was Jesus. Mother Teresa has often been citing by saying, you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Friends, to bust this myth, we have got to stop wanting more. The, ne the next thing we uh, want to look at is this picture. I love um, kind of what this illustrates. It's a kind of a frightening picture. It's uh, on Tuesday, September 8th, 2015, a British Airways jet, it caught fire, uh, leaving the Las Vegas airport, was headed for Europe, and the, the pilot described it as a catastrophic failure of the left engine, a Boeing 777, again, heading uh, to, to London, I believe. Flames could be seen 
right there under the fuselage. And so they begin to evacuate, but probably something that's a little more striking, an image that uh, was a little more hard to look at was this. What do you see there, circled in red? Those, those, that's their carry-on luggage. That's the stuff that was in the overhead compartment. Now, the FAA has a rule that you're supposed to be able to evacuate a plane in 90 seconds. 90 seconds, a minute and a half, everyone's supposed to be able to get off the plane. But an air traffic controller in Chicago actually did a little math and thought, let's just say getting that luggage took them five extra seconds, just five seconds. I'm going to go up and open the overhead bin and get my luggage down five more seconds. If just half the people did that, it would have increased the evacuation time to over seven minutes just so they could leave with their stuff. Imagine being in the back of the plane. Imagine having a loved one on that plane knowing that it could explode at any moment and someone is making sure they have their latest book or tabloid or clothes or whatever it may be in those bags. Now, maybe that wasn't an active decision. Maybe it's just human nature. But this illustrates so much about our love for stuff that we're willing to put our lives and the lives of other people at risk simply to gain more. We have to stop wanting more. Not only that, we have to stop working more. That's the second thing I want us to consider stop doing. The U.S. is the most overworked nation in the world. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, otherwise known as the OECD, they track these sorts of things. In 2021, they say that Americans work on average 1,767 hours a year. That's 435 more hours than the Germans, 365 more hours than the French, and 169 more hours than the Japanese. There may be a lot of reasons for that, but I think one reason is we work more because we want more. And because we want more, we have to have more money to buy more stuff, and we have to work harder and longer hours, and it just becomes this cyclical life that we live. But what does the Bible say about working less? Genesis 2 says this, Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God wasn't tired. He doesn't grow weary. Rather, God wanted to model rest for us and celebrate what was before him. He wanted to celebrate in the contentment of what he had accomplished. And we should be willing to do the same. B&H uh, video, you may have seen this logo before. Uh, they sell cameras and video equipment and pro audio equipment. I bought some stuff from B&H. It's a, a store in uh, New York. And they have a large, large store there. Over, um, I believe, eight to 9,000 people go through those doors into that storefront each and every year. But 70% of their income comes from online sales. Well, B&H is owned, and many of the employees there are Hasidic Jews. They hold fast to the practice of the Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath. In fact, so much, they close at Friday in the afternoon, and they're closed all day Saturday, which is probably some of the most busiest retail days we have. Even on Black Friday, you can't go to their website and buy something. You can look, but you can't buy 
the owners have said, we're, we're just not going to do that. And, and a customer once asked the director of communications, why? Why don't you just let people buy stuff online? I mean, they can have the day off, but at least let the orders be placed. And the employee simply responded, we respond. We respond to a higher authority. We're going to honor the Sabbath. We're going to rest. We're not going to work more just for more money. And church, if you're like half of Americans and the idea of money brings anxiety into your life, it brings uh, discontentment, angst, you have to stop. We have to stop wanting more and we have to stop working more. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing these prayers as a response. Pay attention to these lyrics. Sing them as prayers to God only if you can as we desire to bust the myth of more.